0: My name is Adenike Adewini and I'm a Cumberland Lodge Fellow, currently working towards a PhD in Biosciences and Medicine at the University of Surrey. We're here on the second day of the Cumberland Lodge Conference, held in partnership with the UK's independent anti-slavery commissioner Dame Sarah Thornton on Practitioner Responses to Child Trafficking, Imagine Good Practice. This conference is exploring the role of Practitioner Evidence in Responding to Child Exploitation in the UK. And as how such evidence is shared in relation to informing future research and policy needs and improving survival outcomes. For this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by three of our speakers, Detective Inspector Vicky Lewandowski, Operation Interstate National Lead, Modern Slavery and Organized Immigration Crime Unit, Becky Lewis. Strategic Safeguarding and Quality Assurance Service Manager at Bristol City Council, and Sarah Spain, Children's Social Care Lead at the National Transfer Scheme of the Home Office. Welcome, and thank you very Hi. much for joining me. Hi. Hi. To start, can you briefly tell us about your prospective roles? Shall I go
1: first then, as I was introduced first? Right. So i So I'm Vicky Lewandowski, and I'm a police officer, and I'm currently leading as detective inspector on a national team, so it's called the NPCC, which is the National police, police Chief Council, and my chief constable is the lead nationally for and has the portfolio for modern slavery and organised immigration crime and our unit is to look at improving the policing response to that exploitation type so for me i've got a safeguarding background so i'm very much around safeguarding and we call it the three p's Um, and it's it's all about making sure that we get that response right for victims we look at evidence-led um investigations where we can't Prosecutions where we've got victims that don't want to engage with us. And Operation Ernestor is an area that I'm leading on, and that's around the um, multi-agency response to unaccompanied migrant children. And again, it's all around the safeguarding, making sure we get that right, and we're not criminalising children that are found within the country, and making sure they get the right support from the right agencies. Thank you. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah so I'm Becky Lewis. I'm... Um, in my role, I am um, essentially responsible for the quality assurance mechanisms for statutory social work within Bristol City Council, um, which covers a whole range of um, sort of specialist teams. But one of the teams that I run is uh, our Safer Options team, which is our integrated partnership. Hub responding to exploitation and violence, um, violence reduction. Um, so I'm a strategic lead as part of that work for um, the contextual safeguarding project that that team runs in partnership with the Universities of Bedfordshire and Durham. So we're looking at the moment um, at how we would pilot and embed a contextual safeguarding approach um, to escape safeguarding children from exploitation and harm outside the home. So, Hi, so I'm Sarah Spain I'm um, also
3: a social worker background, I've recently joined the Home Office as Children's so- Social Care Lead for the National Transfer Scheme um, I joined at a busy time so <laughs> I think I joined on the 1st of June and um, yeah, it got very busy very quickly, so it's been a massive learning curve for me um, but yeah I mean, it, it's it's looking at the safe transfer of children from the arrival at the port to um, their um, receiving local authorities. It's identifying receiving local authorities in the country. and will talk a little bit more about it in a minute, I'm sure. Um, I also lead on Operation NERFSTAR with Vicky um, and have done for, well, the last year, 18 months, Prior to that, I was kind of a little bit involved at the beginning in 2016.
0: So, yeah. Great. Coming from a background where I don't really know much about this topic, I've really found all your sessions really insightful from responding to the different harm of children that are trafficked and all of that, and that has been really insightful. So I'd like to ask you, Vicky, how has the Operation NSD helped you to support unaccompanied migrant children, and what are the key strengths of this multi-agency approach?
1: Okay, so Prior to a Nourster, what we were seeing was a number of children that were going missing. Um, They were being identified within the community or being found in in the rear of lorries, being put into placement with no risk assessment being put around their exploitation, why they're in the country, what journey they've been on and what we found was the the missing episodes with um, unaccompanied children was actually really high so it meant that a lot of resource was going in for policing, for local authority to try and locate these children and the problem we had was without Inerster we didn't have anything to base our search on these children, we didn't have their fingerprints, we didn't have a photograph of the children, we didn't even know if we had the name or the date of birthright. So What INERSTA did was we looked at the legislation across all the different agencies, we looked across the processes to make sure that when those children were identified, straight away we get that response right. So the ECPAT report was around making sure that we get that, or NSPCC as well, the rapport within the first 30 minutes, make that child understand that they're not in trouble, that they are here, we are going to look after them, we are going to protect them, we are going to give them the services they are entitled to and actually they do have entitlements when they are in the UK and um, a nurse was very much pushing safeguarding prior to that we were seeing children being arrested, they were then being held in custody centres they weren't being looked after properly So what we did, we've now brought different agencies, so we've got children's services, we've got police, we've got immigration enforcement, we've also worked really closely with Bernardo Zictas, but we also, we rely on the key stakeholders um, from other agencies, so we've um, had a lot of conversations with the Refugee Council, so there's a lot of key people that we've worked with to make sure we're getting this right for the children and everything we're doing is we, we know that from the the latest figures now children are remaining within placement and those children that are going missing when they're suddenly found so we've had children that have been found within cannabis factories when they've been found they then are possibly going into custody or their fingerprints are being taken we're then able to identify them from children that have gone through the process six months ago 12 months ago so then straight away we can then look at a strategy conversation between all the main organizations, all the statutory organizations, plus the Bernardo Zitors, any other, anybody else that can support that child, and make sure we 're making the right detailed risk assessments isn't it It's getting yeah. that risk assessment right, and I think it's understanding that a child an unaccompanied child who's been exploited there's so many complexities to it, and before a NERTA. Some of the children yeah. weren't even having Section 47s, were they? They weren't even having a discussion whether it was it's even needed. About,
3: it's about building
1: inconsistency yeah. across the UK. I think that's what yeah. was missing.
3: And, and it, you know, there's still a long way to go. Mm. But the other thing about it is, I mean, whilst we're still early stages, really, yeah. in terms of we're reviewing it, we're modifying it, but, I mean, we're we've we looked at the GDPR, we've looked at everything and you know we've really concentrated on mining detail to be able to assist and support because it's not for us, it's about us supporting um, our partner agencies, the police the children's services, about that, helping them assisting them to adopt a process that will um will safeguard children you know and um, it is about building in that consistency working with local authorities to understand the need to prioritize the safeguarding in terms of having those um, strategy discussions um to talk about who's doing what to make sure things don't get missed because i think that's where we were before
1: yeah yeah and it's and it's is uplifting the knowledge as well for mm-hmm. professionals because so many professionals were saying, Well, they've come into the country, they've, they've come here on their own, you know, not understanding that these children have been trafficked in, that there's that risk of, of exploitation, and there was just none of that understanding, was there? So, what we're doing mm-hmm. is uplifting that knowledge and the knowledge around the NRM. With our regional events we've done, we, you know, we've got 30 forces now that are on board with this and their partnership local authority agents. Um, Organisations, they not all of them knew even what the NRM was. So we've had calls saying, "Well, can we have some training on the NRM? Where do we get this from?" So it's just that uplift of knowledge for all the professionals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And talking about safeguarding and prioritizing safeguarding in local city councils, Becky, could you tell us what contextual safeguarding is and what are the challenges you've had to overcome when piloting your location based approach to responding to criminal exploitation in Bristol City Council?
2: Yeah, so um, contextual safeguarding is a. Uh, framework um, for understanding and thinking about harm to children outside the family home that was first coined and has been led on um, by Dr. Carlene Furman. Um, and essentially, it's um, a way of thinking about how the safeguarding system should and should operate to respond to the harm that mainly adolescents experience, which isn't um, based in the family. So that might be criminal exploitation, sexual exploitation, it might be forms of hate crime, antisocial behaviour, and um, kind of a whole range of kind of different harms that children experience um, out in the community often, but also online. And what um, Dr. Carlene Furman's research kind of picked up. Um, and explored was that um, a couple of key factors. Firstly, that the child protection system and the child safeguarding system have been largely designed around familial abuse, um, so harm within families, essentially. Um, And when social workers and others and the professionals around children were trying to respond to child sexual exploitation or child criminal exploitation, when most of the harm was happening um, to children by um, individuals who weren't related or connected to them. Our tools, our ways of assessing risk, our intervention offers, were all focused on the family. So while the, so we weren't targeting harm as where the harm was happening. Um, and actually a lot of the research shows that children's families' ability to protect them from harm that happens outside the family is quite minimal and it's quite limited. So there's been real barriers Um, and opportunities for us thinking about how we implement new ways of working. And, um, you know, in some ways, that it's been, it's exciting because it's an opportunity for local authorities and the partners around them to think differently about how we might intervene. Um, so one of the areas we've piloted is thinking about um, how we respond to areas and places in the city where children may be being harmed repeatedly and those children are unrelated and it, it's sometimes that the perpetrators are unrelated as well um, but it's, it seems to coalesce in certain environments um, and we've coordinated social work-led assessments and then intervention plans um, with multi-partners, c- um, community safety, licensing, police, um, community groups, young people themselves, a whole range of kind of partners to understand these issues in that area and think about what's needed to shift them. So we've thought about that on a kind of street wide footprint but also you know alleyways and youth clubs and youth centres and um we've had whole kind of spaces can look really different so you know we've also had flats for example private dwellings where we've had um repeated issue you know concerns about um blocks of flats where young people were experiencing sexual exploitation for example and the approach we've taken has enabled us to kind of intervene not just to safeguard the individual children but think about how can we make changes to that space and some of that is about Um, policy and development so some of it's been about you know making sure there's youth provision making sure that the schools in the area are supporting children to be in school and not excluding them some of it has been around um, giving access to work and employment that's safe for young people others has been more around the criminal justice around really targeting perpetrators of exploitation Um, but then we've added in some of those more um, crime and community safety type strategies like Redesigning of lighting, traffic flows, that kind of thing. Um, so I guess some of the new the barriers, you know, here from colleagues here with any type of innovation, it's like it takes time to adopt. It takes time to test out. You're bringing lots of people on board. It takes time to have a common language. And we're really because this is a, a part, you know, it's not a model that we can just adopt with fidelity. We're co-constructing and testing it. Um, it's how do you measure impact really of different approaches so if we put a lot of investment and work in a certain area you know what are our best measures is it by reductions of crime is it by what the young people use that space tell us you know what are our kind of measures in the area
3: great can i ask a question so and i completely agree that they the safeguarding framework at the moment doesn't really support um, are young people that have been criminally exploited, sexually exploited? That it, is there any work going on to look at that and record? So I, I get what you're saying that you're targeting the communities and you're using a contextual approach to safeguarding, but what about on an individual level of how you're recording that risk for them and how that, is, that risk is changing, how it's reducing? Is there any way of doing that?
2: Yeah, so as part of the Protect safeguarding project, we've taken two strands to it. So the kind of place-based strand that you asked me about is kind of what we call level two. So it's how do we create a whole new system that can respond to peer groups and places and look at that within the child welfare system. But the stuff that you're describing around, is what we call level one, around the individual. So what we've been trying to do is things like... Um, support our social workers when they're doing assessments to think about where they're observing the child, what are the tools they use to understand peer networks? So why were they doing econ- maps that understand the family system when the harm is it's outside? outside. So how do we translate those social work tools that we've got and were well-established, well-evidence-based into a community context? So if you're responding to criminal exploitation, how do you understand peer networks? How do you understand those conversations about drug dis- supply, debt bondage? What are your best ways of exploring that? Are you really going to assess that harm in the house or would you be better doing that in a community setting? Um, So some areas have really adopted a lot of visual tools around trying to um, identify places of safety and links um, with other young people as part of their assessment process. Um, One of the tools we found most helpful in in Bristol has been um, Carleen and um, Jenny. Jenny Lloyd who works with Carleen's work on um, new assessment triangles and ways of reinterpreting the statutory Social Work Assessment Framework which is well known in children's mm. social care into a extrafamilial harm dynamic. So, how do you understand friendships? How do you understand places and peer groups, um, and some of kind of Craig Barlow's work around how those intersect and how we understand the factors that lead to harm outside the home? So, it's just about moving. I think a work the workforce, the assessment frameworks, our recording systems to a different place. Um, That's quite difficult
3: because it's so embedded, isn't it, that if there's a risk, there is a plan, but we we kind of, as social workers, I think we think like that, child in need, child, um, you know, or child in need of protection.
2: And I think, you know, there's uh, pilots across the country trying different things. So. You know, our colleagues in Wiltshire are trialling a fifth category in child protection conferences to think about children who are harmed outside the family home. In Bristol, we try and work with families at a child in need level, less adversarial, but bring in different partners to, and have a kind of different intensity of that conference. Um, and you know, you may have, whereas if you're working around domestic abuse, for example, you have a kind of quite traditional set of safeguarding partners. We might be thinking actually for this piece of work we need to partner with licensing because that child is being abused through a licensed business, for example. And actually, the plan we can do, we need to do the recovery work. We need to do the um, mental health and wellbeing. We need to address their needs, but actually to address the harm, not into the police need to look at you know how they investigate the offenders. Both licensing they need to think about that business space and how we might be able to change it. There have been contextual approaches for years. I talked about licensing. Licensing legislation for a long mm-hmm. time has been contextual. You know, Children's are responsible authority. We have an opportunity to comment on licensed premises. But it's not mainstream social work
0: practice.
2: And it's mm-hmm. like, how do, we, how do we shift it?
0: Awesome, awesome. Um, briefly, um, Sarah, could you tell us about the National Transfer Scheme? Yes, the National Transfer Scheme, um, was
3: introduced in July, July 2016, and it was um, in response to the government recognising the volume of children arriving through the port areas, and um, the immigration Act was changed to allow for this transfer of children from one authority to another. It's a voluntary scheme. It's just been reviewed on the 26th of July and um, relaunched. Um, with a national rotor, so there you know, is now each region we're divided up into I think it's 11 or 12 regions, I forget, sorry, across the UK, including um, Scotland have just come on board and Wales, and we're hoping that Northern Ireland will come on board than Chile, but there are obviously logistics with that, for transferring children across the water um, but yeah, so it works on a rotor so around, it revolves around the regions um, where children arrive i mean we've had a lot of children arrive this summer it's been incredibly difficult and there's been a lot of media coverage about the number of boats arriving but um yeah the volume of um vulnerable um people coming through the port and just so the officers down the port the work that they're doing it's been amazing to kind of support all those young people come coming through and all those families as well but Um, Yeah, so basically that's what I do and I coordinate that, so we have a small team in the Home Office, they are a very small team, they work very hard um, around working with the regions, the strategic partnerships who then link in with the local authorities to identify placements and um, transfer the children, so we've been arranging the transport for them as well
2: once. To a question because I I'm, don't yeah. I'm, I guess I'm interested because obviously mm. there are a small number of local authorities who place a high number of children, and then we've got local authorities who take lower numbers of yeah. young people. Which is obviously why the transfer scheme was established in, in some mm. um, aspects. I was wondering what your views are of a some of the barriers for some of those authorities who don't who take lower numbers of children but also um, how those issues I guess around race and identity play out in some of the Mm -hmm. authorities with smaller numbers of migrant children and how you know authorities can effectively meet their needs because that would be one of the barriers I guess that's often raised isn't it? Um, I
3: I think it's is it it's a difficult one isn't it because i absolutely appreciate that there's local authorities that are completely rural or you know in uh, in Scotland for instance you know where there are really small communities and predominantly white communities, so introducing uh, un- unaccompanied migrant child to that community could be seen as quite isolating. But then I guess, I'm, for me, I need to think about how are we going to um, develop communities across the country if we don't transfer children. It's equally not helpful or beneficial for anybody for the children to remain in the poor authorities where their services are saturated and the needs can't be met there just isn't the resource there to be able to support the children so I think we do need to look at alternatives and I think it is the right thing that children do transfer and to all regions and all areas and it is about supporting local authorities to develop those communities and make sure that we've got the resources there for them so I know from my previous role in the strategic migration partnership you know' I'm working with local Local authorities around looking at what they need to be able to support, and you know things like legal advice, you know the, the education, the english language classes, and in those rural areas, we know that's really difficult. You know, it's it's about looking at transport for children to get to the places where they, they need to go. Religious, set, um, religious settings. You know, we've had um, mosques pop up in village halls, which is great. You know, it's really creative, and and that's kind of what we want to. Of support, but I guess the role that I'm doing is very new. In it, it, you know, I came into this job and it's kind of just looking at how I can support, how I can help. You know think about all these things and work with the local authorities but um, I'm always open to discussions and, and ideas and I'm happy to pass them on but, and I can't remember the first part of the question so I think sorry. It.
0: You <laughs> <it>. <laughs> thank you very much for joining me thank you so much Vicky Sarah and Becky um, for taking our time for from the conference to be part of today's podcast Cumberland Lodge is exploring child trafficking as part of its 2021-2022 conference programme and you can find more about this information and our work at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. If you are unfamiliar with us, Cumberland Lodge is an educational charity that tackles social division through dialogue, debates, and conferences, retreats and p- panel discussions. Key themes of and cross-sector recommendations from this conference will be presented in a joint Cumberland Lodge and IASA report to be launched in central London later this year and shared widely in print and digital formats. So do keep an eye on it. Thank you once again, my guests, and thank you everyone for listening. Thank
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.